Marta, we're back for episode two. Back for episode two. Uh, we already dealt with waste in the previous one. So now uh, we're up for number two, which is power. Last time we heard about the cost of our lifestyle and how we might regenerate some of that back. Here we're going to talk about what is actually fueling that, what makes it even possible to do this. Energy, like where is it generated? What do we do with it and who controls it and, and who designs it? So for the second episode, where did you go? I went to Eemshaven, which is all the way up north in Groningen. Like right. it's very, it, it's, it feels very remote. And um, the thing about Eemshaven is, if I had to describe it is, it's not so much the way it looks or even the way it feels, it's the way it sounds. Because if you're there, there's just this sort of hum like a very, very big fridge is doing its work somewhere. The one thing that really stands out is there's nobody there. Like, it's empty. But it is clearly running. It's very uncanny. And if it weren't for Kos Koning, the CEO, showing me around, I wouldn't have spoken to anybody there in the time I was there. We had a, a guy from the US who said, Oh, it isn't the end of the world, but you can see it from here. <laughs> but uh, if, you, if you look there, you see Germany. Um, and, and the island of Borkum is over there. One of the things that really strike me, because we've been driving around for a bit and we're standing here, and we're the only people I can see. Like, I hear it's busy. People can hear it too, probably. Uh, and it definitely looks busy. I see ship coming in. Things are turning chimneys are puffing out smoke but there's nobody here <laughs> that's right in this ship where, where the, they are taking now this steel oil there are 40 people working in the, in the factory over there, there let's say also 40 people working and, and the coal-fired plant 150 people we're going to drive by google there are 300 people working it looks like there are not many people working over there but at the end if you look per square meter or let's say per hectare, it's relatively danced with people. If you compare it, for example, to a coal fire plant, uh, 150 people working on an area of 60 hectare. Yeah, that's not, not that much. If you look at the data center, 300 people working on 40 hectare. But it's funny that what comes down to a small village is taking care of 30 to 50 percent of the Dutch energy production. Yeah, that's amazing. That's really amazing. That's, and, and that makes it so special to work here, actually, because the fact that we have so much energy consumption here, that's also the reason why the data centers are coming here, because they want to be near to the electricity production. The, the chance that they're getting out of, uh, of energy must, must be as low as possible. So that's one of the reasons that they are here. There is something about the Eemshaven experience, both uncanny and reassuring. A place that has no need for human niceties and yet is powering those same niceties elsewhere. I am not the only one who feels this strange fascination. Sven Stremke is an associate professor in landscape architecture at Wageningen University. To this specialist on energy landscapes, Eemshaven and its mighty carbon output stands out. It's hard to capture in words. It's very intense. Uh, it doesn't even matter when you go. You can go at night. You can go during the day in the wind in the summer, on a windy day or not. It's it's very intense uh, landscape. 
It's an area that was created from the water, of course, uh, for agricultural production. And slowly industry and energy production is eating into those lands. There are some, let's say, clear uh, negative trade-offs already. It's a bit off the radar, so some things happen there that, that might not happen in the Randstad or closer to, uh, to the bigger cities. It's a fascinating sort of sublime landscape of, of energy, different sorts of, like you said, a layered, we call this a hybrid energy landscape, multiple sources, production, conversion, storage, transmission, everything ha takes place at the same spot. But to me, it's also a bit of colonial space in the sense of that the people who, who live there and, and have to make a living are not in charge of the decisions that are made in that landscape. So it is quite colonial in that sense even though it's obviously within the, the the footprint of the country of the Netherlands. You called it sublime. What did you mean by that? Well, sublime in the sense of uh, that there's uh, different kinds of beauty and sublime is sort of one of them. So it's a beauty that's maybe not necessarily aesthetically attractive. So it's not something you want at home, but it's fascinating in the sense that it really offers new experiences and it's a sort of out-of-the-world uh, experience. It's like you also have a mass flakte and there, there's a bunch of places like that. So in that sense, sublime, a sort of curiosity, you know, what is this machine landscape? What's actually happening here? Like you said yourself, you know, where are the people? Something like that, like for whom is this stuff, you know? Sort of alienated, but interesting, intriguing, like you want to know more. So there's this need for energy, this increasing need too. So how much more are we going to need? Oh, we are going to need much, much, much more. One of the reasons is the fact that the industry is changing their energy source. So they are going from gas towards electricity. So that's one of the reasons why we need a lot of electricity in the near future. And another thing is that we want to change from raw material towards, let's say, gas, towards uh, hydrogen. And for hydrogen, you need also energy. And of course, to be, in our case, we want to make green uh, hydrogen. And let's say, then you need also green energy, uh, renewable energy. So we are making big plans together with uh, Gasunie and Shell. And in the meantime, also RWE and Equinor are the ones that are in this project, a project called North H2. We're aiming for one gigawatt in 2027, uh, four gigawatt in 2030, and 10 gigawatt in 2040. The idea is that we install these wind farms offshore, bring the electricity towards Eemshaven, build here electrolyzers where you can make uh, hydrogen out of out, out water, and transport uh, the hydrogen to, uh, via the gas pipes from, from Gasini that we don't need anymore because we're, we're getting away from, uh, from natural gas and then uh, bring it towards uh, customers, for example, here in Delft but also in Amsterdam, Rotterdam, Antwerp, on the west uh, pipeline and the east pipeline will go uh, via Delft towards the area of Gemmelot nearby Maastricht and rural area. So we want to, to be the green source of green hydrogen for the western part of Europe. In your definition, um, what is carbon? Good question and complicated question, because I'm not a chemist. <laughs> But I think um, carbon to me and the colleagues, the people that I work with, carbon is uh, not a neutral term. It is something has to do with responsibility um, that we have. And to me, carbon only matters in the sense of 
uh, our environmental pressure on uh, on climate on the climate crisis or let's say our contribution to the climate crisis so in that sense carbon is something that is also uh, has a negative connotation and it's something that uh, like energy consumption or possibly meat consumption that that you need to think about and you might want to do something about that because it has this effect on on global climate and we want to I think there's a larger, a growing group of people who are conscious about that and want to reduce the carbon footprint. And um, we're also trying to convey that sense uh, when we talk with politicians, you know. Very often the discussions go very detailed into, uh, let's say we work on energy landscapes or renewables environment. And you can have very detailed discussions on how thick cables need to be to connect a certain solar park maybe. And then once in a while we remind uh, the discussants, the participants, like, hey, wait a minute, is this uh, something that matters for climate change? You know, is that still uh, does it still matter? Because that's the reason why we came together. So carbon is uh, it's very loaded loaded term, but it really uh, brings together a whole bunch of uh, disciplines, and that's what I find exciting. One of those disciplines is on display in Marianne van Abel's sunlit studio. Marianne is a solar designer and the results mimic the stained glass windows of some futuristic church. We work here on the bigger question of what is the future of solar energy and how can we design with the sun and how can we integrate it better into our daily environment. That's kind of the questions we have here. So how can we add an emotional value to it? And uh, now we're working on yeah, kind of like the looks as you can see around here, a lot of place with color and stuff because solar panels can also be very beautiful. You must always get this question but when did you start to think of the sun as your medium so to say your material? Um, nice question. I think because I'm working with solar energy and, and sun is the source of that and it's yeah you're working with light uh, and mostly I'm, I produce light through light uh, it's, I mean, this, the sun is the biggest source of life. It provides all our energy. And uh, yeah, now I'm actually trying to yeah, harvest that energy and, and, and use it. Yeah, but what I mean is, how did you come to solar power in the first place? Why did you start to work with it? Yeah, that's a question I can't answer because it's a fascination. It's like, why are you in love? It's like, I think I'm in love with solar panels. And uh, I think it's just amazing that the sun hits the surface and then it's being converted into energy that you can use. I think when I was studying at uh, the Rietveld here in Amsterdam, I unconsciously designed already with solar panels. But when I was graduating uh, in London to RCA, I found this technology that uses colors that were also solar panels. And then it was the first time that I saw that it can also be beautiful. And then I thought, yeah, okay, that's like a medium to work with. So... I like the idea of solar panels and then they can be beautiful. So I saw like a reason to design with them. Maybe I should just show you because when you, when you make a new work, you're kind of like also a bit in love with your new work and you want, just want to talk about your new work. That's basically. Let's talk about your new work then. Okay, what you see here is, a, it's, its name is Ra, uh, name after the son of God, obviously. Uh, you see a very like yeah, vibrant colors, a lot of patterns and stuff. And this is a solar panel. And there's a light inside there. It's very thin LED light here. And then during the day, it's 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 kind of captures the light. And in, in the evening, this will show. Uh, this will light up, and it's just like one millimeter thick. 
you have to excuse me, I sort of knew that this was what I was supposed to expect, but just seeing it here, it looks like you just put a piece of plastic on the window, but that's not it. The prototype, we're prototyping here. This will all come together with this, the solar panel here. And it look, you think it looks like a piece of plastic? This no, is no, as the thinness of it. Like, I wasn't prepared for the thinness of it. Yeah, yeah, that's nice. So, like, solar panels can be transparent, they can be color, it's very thin. So, it can be a form of art. I can see that churches might be into this kind of work. Yeah, I like that sort of stained glass from the old days. They were telling stories through their stained glass, and this is kind of like a story of the future. It is a sweltering day in Amsterdam. I arrive, sweating, at the Urbaniehofer, a social design lab for urban agriculture. One of its founders, artist Deborah Solomon, is walking me through a cool and leafy garden, an almost feral-looking place compared to the barren and scorched playground where the school children next door have to weather the heat. It is, in everything, a negative of the supersized setup of Eemshaven. the heaven of the pond. <laughs> um, what's going on here is this, this used to be a parking lot. This is uh, now, um, I think it's a 11 year old food forest. It was a pioneer landscape when I came here and see these tiles, which are now ringing this large tree. Actually, it's like a, an enormous, uh, unintentional uh, insect habitat and salamander habitat. Um, that was paving this area. This is infrastructure production. It's, it's the work of many hands and many species' lives <laughs> that produces this. It produces food production, produces climate crisis mitigation, it produces biodiversity produces water sequestration, protects us from climate crisis, very real, in a very real and direct way. As you say that, that brings to mind the things I saw in Eemshaven or what you could see if you would go to uh, Rotterdam, for example. Then I look at this and this is a beautiful green space. It's gentle, it's cool, it's what you would think of as a, as a pleasant place to be. It feels so precious here. So very precious compared to what I saw there, which felt inevitable. That's definitely how the director of the port saw it too. A very, very optimistic, confident man, because he knew which way the wind is blowing. How can this confront that? This place could never, as much infrastructure as it can produce, cannot feed as many mouths or warm as many homes. or That is not... It's not the same kind of infrastructure. But the city produces nutrients. It has this incredible potential to produce high-value nutrition, the things that shouldn't have to travel far if we want the nutrients to be maintained, the delicious things, the beautiful things, same things with proteins, things are, that are really easy to produce in a city without terrible destruction and change to uh, aesthetic quality of life and so forth. But practicing eating here, we experience a completely different kind of consumption. 
when your uh, leafy greens are foraged from spaces that are produced as foraging landscapes, as we are trying to do in Amsterdam Zuidoost in the in the food forest there, you eat leafy greens in a completely different way. You eat them more. You eat them less. You're not su your salad isn't suddenly that silly kropsla that always this kind of vegetable always that it's like a different thing every day and it's fresh and it came from a place that you knew and you saw also those birds over there and this these geese over there that's where the garter snakes over there are laying their eggs you had all these other rich experiences i um am continually criticized for offering this proposition. People think that it's uh, a bourgeois and a ridiculous uh, utopian proposition, but I dare any of those people to spend a month with our group in Zaudost practicing these things and to understand the richness. I mean, even just the walking around, like how many kilometers get walked how many steps you know people are into their steps now i mean it really it changes you maybe it's a good time to talk to a designer who already wrestled with power who dealt with carbon i'm calling judith seman a designer who made the carbon age a project wherein carbon got captured within beautiful black discs to be buried underneath but it was that same project that caused a radical change within her. I looked deeply into the cycle of carbon, which was in the news a lot, like we have too much CO2 into the atmosphere, we have a problem with that, there's no solution for it, uh, except not using certain things anymore, which were not going to stop being used like cars. That was pretty obvious for me at the time. Um, yeah, then then were we doomed or what was the problem then? But when I studied biogeochemistry, I saw like th that the earth has no problem whatsoever to uh, close a cycle. The amount of carbon that is in the air, you can easily put back into it. And with my project uh, Carbon H, I, I tried to advertise that way by making some kind of symbolic design uh, out of carbon that was made out of charcoal. I've been like talking for weeks about, about how, this, uh, how this solution is just right under our nose and it's very easy to do actually. I found out that our sustainability issues are in no way related to the ecology of the earth. That's just uh, an easy, easy fix actually. It's uh, purely an economical problem. It's only uh, a matter of choice uh, that and choices that are made by people, the big corporations that actually make choices for us, I basically realized that <laughs> it really doesn't matter what I will design in the future because the other options will be there too. The only thing that will help change the world is change people's minds and their choices. Back to the park with Sven Stremke. We're moving away from impact mitigation, from reducing uh, nuisance towards creating values and also re-narrating and re-exploring the stories around this energy transition because it's much too negative. If you ask me, 
And um, if you don't have much time, you come across the negative stories rather than the in-depth and the exciting stuff. What kind of role does design play in this in this kind of proposition? Um, the agents are more important than the actual designs, the drawing. The drawing is, of course, uh, it's very tentative and very um, short-lived. Uh, it is something that can sort of a speculation that that lots of the student projects they they will never be executed like that but they they feed into a conversation into a discussion about a possible future there's not too many people who are i mean there's of course the poets and philosophers the number of people let's say the professions that speculate of the future are very there's very few of them so uh, and you see very fruitful if they join forces you see extremely relevant uh, propositions so it starts with imagery But these days, the, the narratives are also becoming more and more important. So how is something framed? Can something that is somewhat awkward and strange still by some maybe negatively uh, perceived turn into something neutral or maybe even with a positive connotation? And they are very conscious in reflecting also what they see in their environment. So they are very easily, they can express whether something is good or bad or on the good or the bad side of the, of the coin. And so they have also a role in this sort of reflection and, op and let's say, confrontation. Uh, you know, I, I call sometimes, I call myself uh, Sancho Panza. Maybe you know the story. Don Quixote is the big guy on the horse who runs the show. And he's got a little uh, small guy uh, who's actually telling the lord of all, the boss, like, uh, you might be mistaken <laughs> after all. Meanwhile in Emshaven with Gascogne. This whole energy transformation cannot go out without people suffering from from this i mean we are building here all these windmills the 28 windmills extra that will be large ones no? that they will be 200 meters high there there is a small village with 80 people of course they are not happy with that i, ca I can fully imagine I, i i lived myself over in in one such a small village where all these big windmills came not everybody is happy um and and at the end you should also take care of the fact that that people also uh, getting something from it and so we're having some 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 advantage because it cannot be the way that that we are making here this renewable energy uh, and and all this renewable energy will go to Amsterdam for example citizens paying taxes are subsidizing uh, the energy needs of corporations so we see in the Randstads Um, different prices for us and for a data center. And the energy cost for you and for me, when we pay heat or energy for, we pay for energy to cool or heat things, that's very different. It's, a, it's um, a, more than a hundred times difference in the amount. And we can check that number, but I, it might even be 178 times Uh, the difference. The Netherlands is a tax haven for certain kinds of business and as long as that has free reign it will produce these economies which have a global finger. They have tentacles that reach everywhere. It brings certain kinds of people here. It uh, brings certain kinds of economies here And it places them also elsewhere. And these are extraction economies and uh, 
including food, but also materials. That something is uh, that we're using, say, new technologies and we're talking about data centers here doesn't mean that all of the materials of that data center start and end in the Netherlands. They didn't. They start with, you know, child labor in, uh, in Congo. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they they have to do with extraction landscapes in Africa or South America or all different places in the world where metals, uh, rare earth metals, are being extracted and leaving a devastation. It boils down to the discussion of whether or not we can decouple economic growth from resource, resource consumption or in particular we can decouple economic growth from electricity and energy consumption and there are some good examples that can be done but it's difficult and very complex so in the short term I think that economic growth will come with uh, increase in consumption but the thing that we are working on making that consumption you know let's say climate neutral so taking the environmental burden of that energy consumption And I'm saying that because I'm not confident that we've been trying in Europe for almost 20 years now to reduce energy consumption. And the only year we managed was with the corona crisis, <laughs> for obvious reasons. So there's not a strong record of, let's say, uh, reaching the yearly targets in terms of energy consumption. Uh, can it be done ethically, like these goals that we state? And then even forgetting the Paris Accords, which are, of course, a compromise in themselves. But the things that need to be done in order to stave off the worst of climate disaster. Can they be done? Is that like a physical possibility? I think so, yes. I, I think so, yes, but it requires much, much more than uh, subsidies and sort of uh, spatial policies on where to put uh, solar panels. You know, it requires, uh, I think, to me, a much broader societal debate. Uh, I mean, it boils down to, you know, the, the schools, to uh, the universities, to... Uh, to the people sitting in the bus and waiting for the bus. I mean, it's, it, it really needs to be a much broader discussion. Now, energy transition and climate is, I think, for the large part, of, it's, it's something that the experts are looking into and trying to, you know, they sort this out for us, for others. And then if we, if we don't align, if we don't agree, we will let our voice uh, be heard. But other than that, it's the responsibility of others. And I think that that needs to change. That really needs a paradigm shift. Back on the phone with Judith Seymour. I think that uh, just after I graduated, uh, I, I was not really sure yet, though I knew um, that that this I was on to something important. I, I couldn't make that switch right away. So first, of course, I've, I have been a designer and I, I did that work for some quite some years, actually, knowing this fully. But um, then I, I really... Um, try to use my designer skills in that uh, mind-changing field. So it wasn't like I didn't use my creativity anymore. Um, for example, I um, I created completely by myself um, a, a course for um, uh, people in a, a large company that do accountancy uh, in the world, uh, a, a course in sustainable finance. At the time that I graduated, we had um, uh, economical collapse, uh, which was for me actually more important uh, to look at uh, or more of a chance than to highlight the ecological collapse because uh, economy, that, that's what people care about. They care about their money. They don't care about like the environment. So um, 
I started to look if I could have some major player in that uh, field to become more aware of the choices they could make that would actually lead to a more um, aware economical field um, where investments um, were used for other things than more profit. And I got to say, I, I got pretty far, actually. I, I was surprised that right out of out of the design academy, I was actually hired by this big company and they let me into the company so deeply uh, and I could just really talk to very high up people all of a sudden. Um, but then at a certain point, America find out that we are doing this project about changing the values and then it was like out with this girl because it became like a... Um, yeah, it, it became dangerous because in the end, they only care about the margins they make, the profit they make. And uh, I had the people internally actually pretty excited about this idea. And then I realized that I was not operating at the right scale, that actually the only change I could make was on the scale that I was myself on a one-to-one scale. So I had to work with people personally. And that's actually when my whole road uh, changed and I became a body-mind therapist. Marjan van Abel. Working with this material, working with the sun, has that changed you? Well, I think it was like sort of the... I was making, uh, for example, these chairs, these well-proven chairs here, and they were bought by people with a lot of money and they've been galleries, and it was kind of like, is, it, is this the way I want to spend my life doing this? It was great. It was it was very successful and it was nice. But it's like, is this what I want for my life? I had this always this love for solar energy, and it was mostly research. And it started with prototypes, but prototypes became more real and real. For example, the uh, graduation project I graduated with on, at the RCA was um, yeah a, a tableware where all pieces are uh, solar cells. So uh, uh, the solar cell is kind of the cup or the plate. So if you don't use it, you put it in a cabinet and then this stores this. There was an I- the first idea that then basically every object can be a solar panel. It was a, and it's generated a tiny bit of energy, uh, but that is a nice research or prototype project. But working more with the industry and making like real impact, that's like making them real, that is different. Um, what was the reaction you got when you started to put these things out, like from the industry? Well, from the sort of the art and design industry, that was uh, super nice. They were super positive, but if you showed like to sort of uh, people that were ba- building big solar parks, it was like, yeah, okay, what's really the, what is the real point of this? I could say because it's like so much a little energy, but it wasn't not about that. It's about uh, this mentality change. Did you convince them of that? I think over the years I did, but not everyone, of course, because still, yeah. yeah. Fair enough. Uh, is it the beauty that did it? Is the aesthetics, the thing that convinced it? Like, is the is the way you talked about it? Is that also how that worked out? I hope so, but it's also consistency. Just keep on going. Every time, said, oh, there's Marianne again. <laughs> I don't know. What are the limitations and what are the possibilities when you design works like this? Well, for example, here, this is a kind of like a green 
glass solar cell and it is working with a Korean factory and they have machines that can produce this. So this is what you have to work with. You can change the colors, but you can make a nice pattern of. So you want to tell a story through this to this cell. So I'm telling a story of like, okay, there's electrons going through, but it is also, yeah, it's photosynthesis. Uh, it captures light, transforms this into energy, similar what plants are doing. So it has a bit of like this leaf structure. Maybe I'm putting too much thought in it, but this is like, okay, for me, this is nice. Deborah Solomon. What brought you to this? Was there a specific moment that made you act? Because that's what we're seeing here, you acting. Hmm. Or is it the wrong verb? Well, I, w I wouldn't see, I mean, you make it sound much more heroic than I would <laughs> see, see it. Or, I mean, I do feel compelled, but uh, I was working in the public space my whole life, but there, my first working environment was the public space of the internet, which was a very different internet than we have right now. And I wanted to be connected to a physical space and a tactile material space. I wanted to be dealing with materials and the material world again in one time zone. <laughs> and then in 2005, something very... I mean, if I look back through my whole thing, I can always say, oh, that was also a step, also that was a step. But actually, in 2005, I read a book by architects Bone and Villun, Continuous Productive Urban Landscapes. They were describing peak oil in Cuba. They were articulating how you can make a spatial planning for transforming space in cities into food production idyls and that book just got me so excited because they used the example of Cuba and food production in Cuba during a peak oil a different kind of peak oil situation a forced situation because of the embargo and also because of one of the many financial and materials crises that happen when we extract and extract and the political um, upheavals that happened because of that, they lost their only client, the Soviet Union, which wasn't a union anymore and therefore, and also wasn't a client anymore. So they had no income, so they had to start, Cuba started having to produce and produce. So this was is the backdrop of that book. And I just uh, was completely gripped. I got to work with them later. I sometimes work with them still. So, um, that was the, the real turning point for me. The landscape is only a consequence of the way we behave and consume and the political structures. There's not much more out there. Of course, there's some natural forces, but we're overriding all these natural processes and we're managing them. So water level, soil quality, nutrient, uh, even air quality these days. So, I mean, we're, we're super uh, geoengineering the landscapes that we see now that people have sometimes, uh, you know, maybe uh, the wind parks, some of the wind parks are not so nice to look at, for sure, and difficult uh, projects. And some of the large-scale uh, solar parks are difficult to digest. I'm convinced that everybody gets the landscape they deserve. 
So landscapes are a consequence of our own actions. And there's some delay, of course, in there. And there's some things that are some forces that are outside of our, let's say, daily control. But we are in a democratic society. We have uh, elections. We have people that represent us. We have courts. So I think we got all the instruments in place to go for it. But it's it's not easy. It's complicated. You know, people have you know a priority of needs. Uh, this this it's not easy. Of course, it's it's absolutely not easy. Yeah? It's it's already you know, think about uh, when you do some shopping in the supermarket. You know, sometimes you know, can you not can you still go for the avocado? You know, and then is it uh, the food miles that you care about? Is it the water consumption? But at the same time, you know, it is something that's really really tasty and healthy supposedly. So, and the kids really want the avocado. So there's a million you know decision moments already there, and it's just an avocado, right? We're not even talking about a big power plant that costs a million, uh, you know, two million. You just said we get the landscape we deserve. Now, if you look at the Dutch landscape, what does that tell you? What kind of, what what do you see then? What why I see a, a above average uh, love for um, aesthetics and and um, perception and experience in that landscape. I see an awful lot of a sense of uh, planning, so thinking about stuff and not just letting stuff happen in the sense of where functions land, but also how they land there. By far the nicest business areas you can find in the world can be found in the Netherlands. And that is because there was a moment there was a lot of attention of making these areas more attractive. And and that translated into uh, subsidy schemes, into financial schemes, into uh, policies, into legislation. And that's the same thing that needs to happen again when you talk about energy. And I see a landscape that is overwritten and overwritten again. And one of the challenges that we're facing in terms of energy, to come back to that topic, is that, for instance, now we love the green heart because it's open and it's green. But what it really is, is, of course, a peat excavation landscape. It's, you know, massive industrial scale peat excavation that was dried and brought to the big cities as an energy source. We see windmills. They were not there because they look nice. They're there for water management and uh, for production. So what we see a lot in that landscape are sort of what we call the reminiscence, the leftovers of earlier energy transition. And the funny part is that now we love them. We protect them. We spend lots of taxpayers' money to maintain these windmills, these historical windmills. And we spend more taxpayers' money in fighting some others. So... One of the challenges that we are facing at university is to reduce the time span between a neutrality or even hatred and a passion about a certain transformation that takes place in the landscape. So, for example, Kinderdijk uh, is an UNESCO World Heritage Site. It took about 200 years for people to start loving the landscape. It was very much disputed and uh, opposed at the very beginning as a purely engineering and soulless enterprise. And now it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. There's no politician who says, you know, we should eradicate or, you know, de delete uh, Kinderdijk. Of course not. So the challenge here is to go for maybe 200 years of acceptance to bring that to 10 or 20 years. If we can do that, then uh, we'll be fine. Then we can manage. So that was episode two. I will never look at the landscape in the same way. We get what we deserve. Yeah, it looks pretty bleak then if you think about it. Like that's not a compliment, I think. It's very matter of fact. I think it's a refreshing idea because it means you can read the landscape in a different way. I never thought about it like that. 
it definitely has become a bit more dystopian now. Like I always sort of liked the Dutch landscape, but it has become more dystopian to me now. Um, we forget how much has been uh, designed to take our eyes off things. And all of a sudden I see those windmills mm. and all the tourists going there. And I imagine, oh, this is Eemshaven, where you went. That's probably the next... That would be something if people went on tourist We become nostalgic about this new industry. Maybe. That would, like... Uh, all right, well, that I, just, I would be very, very curious. And it's funny now that we're here talking about landscapes because I head back to the countryside for our next episode. Oh, where are you going? Uh, well, um, we're going to deal with crops and the things right. that we grow to sustain ourselves. And if you really want to know where the cutting edge is, then Holland is, for starters, a really good spot. Is that the Westland? And then you have to go to the Westland. That's the uh, the Silicon Valley of crops. Glass houses. Mm-hmm. And just see what makes things grow. New Material is a podcast production by Het Nieuwe Instituut, based on the New Material Award, organized by the Doen Foundation, Fonds Quadraat and Het Nieuwe Instituut. Made by host Maarten Westerveen, editor-in-chief Winneke van Muiswinkel, research and concept Toon Koehorst and Jannetje Innetveld, program management Ellen Zoete, project coordination Ole Lundin, sound engineer Alfred Koster and communication Sylvie van Oost. <laughs>